0: As you're being seated, find your Bible, open it up, turn it on. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 today. Happy spring break. Uh, It's one of those interesting Sundays where spring break and time change hit on the same week, and uh, I'm glad you're here. You guys are like MVPs just being here this morning. But we begin our Easter series today, and over the next several weeks, we're going to look at... Some passages in Scripture that are called in theological terms the Christological passages of the New Testament. And what that means is these are some passages that really describe who Jesus is and really gives us detail about the attributes of Jesus. when it comes to our Savior, there are a lot of people that have a lot of different opinions about Christ, for example the uh, The people in Colossae, where the book was written, a lot of them were what are called Gnostics. And they had this philosophy that basically matter is evil, and what you need to do is get in touch with your spiritual side. And so they saw Jesus as a person that brought gnosis or knowledge to the earth, and he became a savior in the sense that if you followed his pattern or his Teaching, then it could release you from the material world and help you to have this gnosis that would cause you to be in touch with the spiritual world. It's kind of similar to modern day New Ageism or Buddhism. Even aspects of Hinduism deal with that aspect, and they have this idea that Jesus is an example within. Society, some have the opinion that uh, they 're agnostic in their opinion of Jesus, so if God exists he 's invisible i can 't empirically see him, and so therefore uh, he can 't be known he, he can 't be seen, and they develop some type of agnostic understanding of Jesus. There are some that we would call the non trinitarian groups groups like the uh, muslims or the mormons the christian scientists the jehovah's witnesses and they would see jesus as a prophet or perhaps jesus is a pathway that would lead you to the divine being but they would not see jesus as god some have an opinion of jesus that falls into the category of the christian moralist And so they might say the same things we do about salvation, that Jesus is necessary for salvation. But when you really begin to dive into their understanding of Christianity, they really see Christianity primarily as self-help, as community morals and ethics. It's very cultural in their understanding of the faith. And so they could be classified as Christian moralists. And some, when it comes to Jesus, have a secularist opinion of him. They simply believe that he was a good man who lived and died, had strong opinions, and died as an example of someone totally committed to his opinion. However, whenever we think about who Jesus is, we need to go to the Word of God. How many of you in your homes right now are starting to be invaded by those mayflies You know what I'm talking about? Mayflies, they look like mosquitoes on steroids. It's like Arnold Schwarzenegger mosquitoes flying around your house. Well, we have a lot of them around our house, and my son has convinced himself that these are monster bugs, okay? And so he believes that if one of these monster bugs bites him, it will be the end of the world as he knows it, and he will not feel fine, okay? And so he's developed a very, very strong opinion of mayflies. In fact, he thinks they're of the devil. He thinks they are satanic in every single way. So I tried to show him the truth. You know, I, he's a techno kid, so I bring up Wikipedia and say, okay, look right here. It says right here that you're bigger, stronger, more powerful than these bugs. You have absolutely nothing to worry about. It's on the Internet, so you know it's true. It's right here. Believe it, black and white. But he still won't believe it. You know, often we form strong opinions. This is what I think. This is what I believe. But if you are a Christian, there's something that you need to do with your opinions. You need to ask yourself this question. Well, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? And so when it comes to who is Jesus, we need to ask what does the Bible say? Well, I'm glad you asked. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 is one of the great Christological passages in the entire New Testament, and it reads like this He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. to have all His fullness dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile everything to Himself by making peace through the blood of His cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. When you read a passage like that, it's kind of like trying to get a drink of water out of a fire hydrant. It's a little overpowering. There is so much information, so much detail about who our Savior is, that literally I could, I could preach for hours and hours and weeks and weeks from this single passage of Scripture. But this morning, I, I want you to notice five facts about Jesus. Five facts about Jesus. Fact one is found in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, as we talked about, one of the struggles that many have with God is I can't see Him. And so if I can't see Him, I'm not sure what He looks like. I'm not sure what His character is like. How can I trust Him if I can't see Him? Well, the passage deals with this idea. It says He is the image of the invisible God. Literally, the word is icon. The icon, it is the image of the invisible. So when you see Jesus, you see God. When you read about Jesus, when you understand his teaching, when you understand his character, when you see how he relates to people, then you understand the character of God and you understand how God relates to people. So if you want to know what God is truly like, if you want to see his purposes, his ways, you want to see him in action study Jesus because whenever you see the son you see the father he is the icon he is the image of the invisible God God does not desire to be uh, detached so that we cannot know him he desires to be known it also says he's the firstborn over all creation now warning sign here Don't make the mistake that says, well, that must mean that Jesus is the first thing that God ever created. That's not what the passage is saying here. In biblical days, whenever you were called the firstborn, it was a title. It was a title of position. It came with authority, So when Christ is called the firstborn over creation, it means that he's the heir. He is the king. It means that everything that you see, both in heaven and on earth, including you and me, are under the authority of the firstborn of creation, the heir. He's the Lord of all. And so as we think about Jesus and who he is the first fact that we need to make sure that we grasp is that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. But then there is a second fact. Look at the Word. Everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him, and don't, catch, don't miss this last part, and for Him. Now, I don't pretend to understand exactly how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all work together. That's called the Trinitarian economy. And as Christians, we believe that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are three persons. They are distinct, and yet they are one. So God is three, and yet He is one. Now, someone has said that the Trinity is a doctrine that if you try to explain it, you'll lose your mind, but if you try to deny it, you'll lose your soul. It is a, it is a complicated aspect of the faith, and yet it's spoken about in Scripture, and it is foundational to our understanding of God. In fact, uh, virtually all cults will begin with a denial or a modification of the Trinity And either an adding to or a taking away from the Scriptures. So within Christ, we see the Son. Now in Scripture, there is this imagery when it comes to creation. And most of us are familiar with Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we have this unfolding where God speaks and there it is. But as you move to the New Testament, you find that the sun was part of the creative event as well. And the sun is described as the one who fashions or molds or makes the creation into what it is. And so in my mind's eye, I can picture God the Father speaking and things coming about, but then I can imagine Jesus, the master craftsman, molding. I imagine Jesus in the carpenter shop, and he is meticulously working the wood. He, I'm sure he had a table saw, didn't he? Yeah, right, you know, so he is working the wood. If you guys want to be like Jesus, get you a table saw, right? And so, uh, honey preacher said i had to get one right and so i I can imagine jesus uh uh fashioning the image that he has in his mind and so jesus creates the angels and he creates jupiter and he creates mars and he decides that there's going to be rings around saturn and he he carves the mountains and he he paints the flowers and he brings flavor to food and and then for his crowning creation He creates you, and He creates me, humanity, and He gives us life. But notice this, that our life does not simply exist for us. Our life exists for Him. So the creation itself exists to bring glory and to amplify the Creator. And as we think about the Son and His role within the creation he is the master craftsman who brings it all into existence and molds it with the character of God. And then we come to fact three. He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. He is before all things. Did you know that Jesus did not come into existence at Bethlehem? The Scriptures say that He's before all things. He has always been, He is, and He always will be. In fact, if you take this verse with the previous verse, Jesus created Bethlehem. He created the star. He created the stable. He created the manger. He he created Mary and Joseph. Now think about that. That's kind of unusual. He is the creator, but not only is He the creator, He's the sustainer. He's the one that holds it all together. You take Jesus out, and the creation implodes. You ever played the game Jenga? Yeah, it's a lot of fun to play as a family sometime. If you're not familiar with it, you take these little wood blocks and you put them in a tower. And then, one by one, you start taking little wood blocks out and putting them on top. And the fun of the game is, is that after a while, the tower starts getting a little bit unstable, and you begin to discover that if you pull the wrong block the whole tower is going to fall. And so the climactic moment of the game is whenever you pull that wrong block and the tower comes crashing down around you. And then, of course, it's fun to make the loser clean it up, right? Clean it up, yeah. (laughs) So all creation, physical and spiritual, are dependent on the firstborn of creation. Without Jesus, creation implodes upon itself. He is the creator, but he is not a detached deity that created and then said, good luck with that, hope it works out for you. He is also the sustainer. He's the one that keeps it going. You remove Jesus, the shalom of creation is not just fractured, but it is gone. But Jesus does not just prop up creation he also restored creation and here's fact four verse 19 the end of it God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross now think about that imagery there we have the cross And we have peace coming together. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. You see the story of creation grows dark. Sin slithers on to the scene. And everything that Christ had created became stained by sin. There is literally no corner of our earth that is not stained by the results of sin. We see it every day. We live it every day. We read about the results of sin every day. Even you and even me are sinners. We're all sinners. So the Father initiated His plan motivated by His love. His plan was not an afterthought or an accident Ephesians tells us it was before the foundations of the earth that his plan was to send his son. And his son took on flesh. Think about this. The immortal took on mortality. The creator, the sustainer, took on flesh and lived a life that you and I could never live because his life was not stained by sin. And the Bible tells us here in this verse that he brought peace to all things, things in heaven and things on earth, spiritual and physical peace. You say, well, how did he do that? He did that through his death and his resurrection. And so today we can experience the peace of God in our hearts and we see the peace of God lived out in our church. You see, the church ought to be a reflection of the change that God has brought about in the hearts of its people. And on the cross, Christ brought reconciliation. You see, upon the cross, Christ took upon himself the wrath of God intended for sin. Christ absorbs that wrath, and he takes it into the grave. The scriptures teach us that the results of sin is death. But because Christ was sinless and because He is God, the death of the flesh could not contain Him. He rose again, conquering death, conquering sin. And He extends the call to all that if you will believe in Him, that the Father will see you in Him. And because He is the one who overcame death because he is the sinless one, when the Father sees you in Christ, he no longer sees you in your sin, but he sees you as righteous, not because you deserve to be called righteous, but because he extends grace to you in Christ. And through that grace, God brings peace. Peace to our heart. And ultimately, peace to his world. You see, Christ will come again. And when he comes again, we will experience the peace of him making all things new. Right now, we experience the spiritual peace. When he comes again, we'll experience the eternal peace of the new heaven and earth. Well, fact five is found in verse 18. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. You see, he's not just the firstborn over creation, but he's also the firstborn from the dead. He's the one that rose again, and because of that, he is the initiator. He is the king of the church. He is our leader. This final fact brings us to your seat today. Right here in church. Look around for a second. Just look around. Look around at the people sitting here with you. If they're asleep, throw something at them. Okay. What you see in this room is the body of Christ. The scriptures describe the church as the body of Christ. We are to be the physical representation of Christ here on earth While he is in heaven. And so we are the church. This is a local church. And it is biblical for local churches to come together in ministry, evangelism, discipleship, worship, and fellowship and be a church. But we are not the only local church, we are connected to other churches in our own community. The churches in our community, by the way, are not our competition. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I encourage you to make it a habit to never speak badly about other churches. Don't play the comparison game. Of course we're a better church. But let's don't play the comparison game, all right? Just, just, let's, just be, let's just be us. We are not in competition with other people. We are connected to the body of Christ. And as we worship here, people worship around the community, people worship around the country. As we gather for worship on this Sunday, there are billions of people, billions of people, worshiping all around the world, singing praises to our Lord. Where is the church? Where is the body of Christ? Well, it's on spring break right now. <laughs> what that means is, is that a lot of the body of Christ is traveling wherever you go that's where the body of Christ goes I like to say we're one church in 500 locations because wherever you are that's where the church is located so where is the church well the church today is in Punjab India Samson and Joy Mall Jerry Hudgens are over there being the church sharing the message of Christ with people there beneath the mountains of Pakistan there. The church was in Guatemala this week as Dr. McKnight went over there and tried to minister to some people that are in impoverished situations, and she was able to leverage her medical skills to help people that were in need of not just her help physically, but also spiritually. Where is the church Well, later on today, uh, the Crenshaw's and some of the McLaughlin's and and the packabushes they're going to be going down to Rockport, Texas. And this week, they're going to be hanging drywall and putting up uh, uh, framing for houses. And they're going to be the church ministering to people who have had their lives devastated by Hurricane Harvey. That's the church. This is church. The church is a visible representation of the body of Christ. And when people see the church, they ought to be able to see Christ. And just as Christ extended His good news to all people, the church is called to extend the good news of Christ to all people. Now catch this. Jesus is our leader. He is to have first place in everything. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. In the early days of Christianity, they had a mantra. It was kurios Christus. It means Christ is Lord. And if you know your history, those early Christians went through so much persecution. Under the emperors Domitian and Nero, they were were killed for their faith. And many of them, with their last breath, they cried out, kurios Christus, Christ is Lord And you would think under that intense persecution that the church would begin to fade and go away. But instead, the church grew like like wildfire. You couldn't stop it. Why? Because they had an understanding that they were the body of Christ and that Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord. Now, if you get the first word of that sentence wrong, it messes up everything. If anything else becomes Lord within your life or within the church, everything gets messed up. If you say, Paul Reed is Lord, messes the whole thing up. Paul's my good friend. Not only that, Paul and I have now served together in ministry for almost 10 years. He's a godly man. Paul's one of the nicest human beings on the planet. If you can't get along with Paul Reed, you just need to look inside, Okay. <laughs> Okay, he's just a nice guy. But as nice of a guy as he is, he would make a horrible Lord. Imagine if Paul Reed were Lord, we would just be singing. All day long. Another verse, here we go, here we go. You know, it was a music minister that created that imagery of us sitting around on clouds playing harps in heaven, right? Yeah, yeah, if Paul Reed were Lord, there'd be broken guitar strings everywhere, and we would, all, we would all drive cars that break down every week. I mean, it would just be an awful, awful thing. As great of a guy as he is, he's not Lord. Jesus, Jesus is Lord. Yet sometimes we put other things at the beginning of that sentence. Family is Lord. And we start worshiping family. It's a good thing. It's not made to be worshiped. Money is Lord. Success is Lord. Power is Lord. Nothing wrong with you achieving success or having a position of authority. Nothing wrong with you being blessed financially. But they're not to be Lord. Sometimes it's vanity is Lord. I've got to look the part. I've got to make sure that I present the right image and that everybody thinks well of me. And so that becomes Lord and we ultimately want people to worship the shell of life. The scriptures teach us that as Christians, Jesus is Lord. And what that means is that he has first place in everything. I sure hope you grasp this idea of living with a singleness of purpose, that in everything that you are and do, you live with one simple goal, to make much of Jesus, to honor him, to bring glory to him with your life. This last Wednesday night, we had our first Wednesday prayer service, and... We were praying in here, and the youth came in for a portion of it. We had a baptism. Summer and Alyssa, where are you guys? Raise all all's hand over here. Summer and Alyssa were baptized. <laughs> and when, when Fletcher, our, our uh, student minister, asked them what they believed about Jesus, they both said something along the lines of, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. You know, that's what baptism is all about. It's about identifying with Jesus as your Lord and Savior. At our moment of salvation, we surrender the heart. We say to God, I'm a sinner, I need your forgiveness, and I embrace Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and God does a work within us. And baptism is how we publicly proclaim what God has done privately within us. We go before the church, and we identify with Jesus as Lord, when you're in the water, it symbolizes Christ on the cross, beneath the water, the burial. And whenever you come back up, the resurrection, it symbolizes the fact that I have been buried in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so God sees me in Christ, and now I live a new life. And in this new life, I am not Lord. Vanity is not Lord. Some, my family's not Lord. Money's not Lord. Power's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And I follow him. And I am connecting to a church because I believe that the church is the body of Christ and I want to be a part of what my Jesus is doing in His church and around, his, around the world. What a glorious thing to be baptized. This this event that is connected to 2,000 years of church history where believers uh, have come before churches and been baptized to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Hey, if you've never been baptized, come see me because we need to get you up there. We need to baptize you because I want you to have the joy of proclaiming Jesus is Lord and identifying publicly with Him. It might also be That as we've looked at this passage today, the hound of heaven has come upon you. He is chasing after you. He is opening your heart. He is proclaiming to you that there needs to be a change in your life, that your life needs to to bow to Christ. And you need to embrace Jesus as Lord. There's never been that moment where you personally have trusted in Jesus as Lord. Would you guys be so kind as to bow your heads, please, as we come to what we call the time of commitment? And if today is the day when you personally need to trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, I would invite you to make this your moment. Say, well, Ash, what do I I need to do? I don't know what to say. You might just call out to God. You can use your own words. You might also want to pray with me and allow me to guide you in this prayer. You might say something like this, Heavenly Father, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I ask your forgiveness and I no longer want to run away from you, but I want to run to you. I pray that you will change me And so, Lord, today I place my faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm trusting in Jesus as my Lord. And I pray that you will forgive me of my sin. That you will grow me and change me so that my life can be a part of your story. Lord, may this be my day of salvation. Pray that prayer in the name of Jesus. I'm not going to embarrass you, but if today is your day of salvation, I I would like to know. I'd like to celebrate with you and just be a pastor to you. And so if this was your moment of salvation, would you just look up at me and allow me to make eye contact with you? If this was your moment of salvation today, would you just look up at me and let me make eye contact with you? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather here together as a church. May we truly be the body of Christ, representing you to the world around us. May we demonstrate authentic Christianity. And may you be Lord of all. May you be first place in everything as we surrender to you and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.